Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey there, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm looking at Evan Ratliff. I'm looking at Aaron Lammer. Our guest this week, Starly Kine. Hey, it's good to be here. Good to have you, man. Good to have you here in the it's conference always room. Always good to be here. It's good. It's good that it's Friday. Um, it's a lovely day in Dumbo. We had a little uh, lunch down by the water, and uh, now we're ready to do some interviewing. That was uh, yeah. It's, uh, we didn't really acknowledge it. That was a romantic lunch we had today. Yeah, it was the first time we've had a podcast lunch. Um, we talked about juicing. It was also 10 degrees too cold. For it was a little bit cold, river. but uh, we fought st- through I, it. I still wanted to be there. And uh, one other thing I did today was work on some email templates, which reminds me that we have a sponsor, uh, Tiny Letter, um, which is from the good people at MailChimp. It's the simple, powerful way to send an email newsletter. Uh, we thank them for their continued support. Uh, Evan, just quickly, uh, Starley Kine. Who's Starley Kine? Starley Kine is probably uh, most known to listeners uh, for her work on This American Life, where she was also a producer. Uh, she has a lot of writing, too. Times Magazine uh, is a spot where you'll find her work. Prolific TV recapper. Incredible TV recapper. She does excel at TV recapping. She tells very funny stories. Uh, if you don't associate her with Phil Collins... Uh, you probably will if you go listen to her stuff on This American Life. Take it away. Hi, Starly. We're Hi. recording now. Oh, we started? Welcome okay. to the podcast. Hi. Do I sound... Are you not going to put headphones on, huh? No, I, I have no idea how you sound. <laughs> we only find out at the end. The things we find on the end are how you sound and whether it recorded at all. Okay. So at the end, right. we'll get to listen to it. <laughs> And if it doesn't record, then we'll do it again another okay. day. That's how we yeah. operate. Do you know the very first story I ever got sent out to for This American Life? It did not record. Dude, what do you mean it did not record? Like three days worth of material. What? Did not re- I didn't check the entire time. Because <laughs> my very, very first story did not record. First of all, what was the story about? It was a story that Ira ended up doing for the live show. So they can like... they. Ira ended up doing this... Sh- he, had, he then asked me if he could do it for the live show. It was about um, Hollywood Forever, the cemetery in L.A. that is now very trendy, and people know all about it, and it has, like, they show movies. It's where a lot of famous people are buried, Uh and it shows a lot of movies, like on special, like Halloween movies, and there's screenings at night. Uh But I, when I went, um, my aunt's dad had died, and what they do is they you can get this package where they make a movie of like the person's life that they play at the funeral. It's very Hollywood. Uh-huh. And so like, there's like different packages. So like you, it, and he was not involved in Hollywood at all, but because he's buried in his funeral in the cemetery, it kind of like makes him f- feel like they were involved in Hollywood. And I found it really awkward and strange. And I had, I'd been an intern at the show, but I'd never done my own story. And then I pitched it. They said, yes, they sent this, um, 
producer Nancy Updike, who's like who's like the greatest, and um, she went and she had brought a kit from the show, and I had got a kit off eBay, a tape recorder off eBay, uh-huh. um, and I had never used it before. And I went and we recorded just like tons and tons of interviews. And at first it wasn't going well, and we just had stuff. And then the next day, maybe I think it was maybe it was just one day of tape. The head of Hollywood Forever was this guy. His name's Tyler. Super handsome. Looks like looks like a movie star from the forties. Like he is so so chiseled and handsome. He could be on like Glee now too. But he he was so handsome, and he started telling the story about how he started at the cemetery, and then he basically like comes out on tape. Like what? Well, he talks about how he had like how he gradually reveals that he's gay and that. It had been this huge thing in his family, and this is how everything kind of came about. And it was really surprising. Mm. And we were not, he was like showing us pictures, and it's a lot, and it's really touching when he tells it. And we, before that, Nancy, I could tell that she, we had not been getting good tape, and I was so nervous, and it was like my very first story, and I totally was freaked out. And then, like, it was like the moment that you're always like waiting for. Like, he's telling this perfect story, and she's looking, and she was totally like, she signaled that it was going to be okay after that point, and I was so excited. And then we came back, and everything that we had used my recorder for, um, and which was all of it, because she, I think, had just gotten like ambient or something with the shows um, with Blank. It was a busty recorder. So that many. That was a tapes. terrible nightmare. It was a terrible nightmare, and I have to say, Ira and This American Life were so nice to me about it. Like they were so. Um, this all this happens. This is, this has happened. I think he maybe told me a story where it had happened to him. They were really, really, really nice. But did before they were nice, were you like, I'm done. I'm never doing a story again. I, it was like the worst. It was blank. Like I was had been nervous and like putting off starting to log the tape because I was so scared of having done a bad job, terrified. And then just. It, it was like the nightmare where you like go to the class with clothes off. Like I, it really was happening, and I kept putting another one in, and being like, "That one must have been a tape that I mislabeled." Now this tape will have it, and just, I mean, I think I listened to an entire ninety-minute tape of air, like I just to make sure nothing was on it. <laughs> just like sitting there with my hands like above the keyboard, just waiting to start typing, nothing. And I knew that we'd gotten like the story that you had to have been there in the moment to have gotten to. It wasn't just like, we're going to go re-interview. We did end up interviewing him, but it wasn't the same because it was all like the slow unfolding of events and us being totally surprised. And 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 it never ran on the show itself. So then what happened was then they ended up doing a live show. I forget what the theme was. And Ira went, because he had to have a story. He always does a story in the live show, like the live theater event. And so he went back to the cemetery and he got some of the tape and we had the guy tell the story and it was fine because you know it was like Ira on stage telling it live and so then it took some of the burden off the fact that he had oh, retold it and it's fine but it wasn't um and he had asked me he wasn't like stealing my story he was like do you mind if I go back so then I because I messed up I also didn't get to do my like it wasn't my first I wasn't even in that story <laughs> I went with him and produced him or whatever it was horrible Horrible, horrible, horrible. So what was your actual first story? What was the one that, I, that where you there was something on the tape? Um, that wasn't, because the very first time I was ever on the show was that was before when, that. Yeah, I, was being interviewed. I want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. We'll get my to first story was, um, my first, oh, child actors. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was about like being a failed child star. Yeah, yeah, right. Also California. But so there's a couple kinds of stories mm-hmm. that you do on This American Life. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk about non-This American Life stuff, too. But, like, that Hollywood thing, and 
similar stories that don't necessarily have you in them. Yeah. How do you find those stories? Because I feel like anyone listening to This American Life, it's worse than any magazine in the sense that of coming up with ideas because you could literally like go around and say like anything is an idea because it's about people. So like where does the sense come from that you see something and you, and you say, okay, this, this has chance to actually make it on the show. Like where does it come from now or did it come from then? Like how did... How did you develop that sense? Um, I feel like I developed it because I was working there from when I was like so young that they taught... I mean, I feel like I had... I feel like they taught me a lot of what that sense was. But I also think This American Life was really good at finding or is really good at finding people who kind of seem to naturally have that sensibility too because when I worked there everybody almost no one who was a new producer was a radio person and they just kind of and like I feel like the unifying trait was that they just had this sensibility where they kind of understood what made a This American Life story Mm -hmm. but I I'm sure in the beginning I did not I would I did not necessarily know it as I mean definitely not as well as I know it now but so I feel like they you just kind of hang out with the producers and you start hearing how they tell stories and you start hearing the details that they isolate from a story. And it happens all the time. Like, I feel that, like, one of my favorite things to do was, like, listen to Julie from This American Life. Like, she would watch something on TV and the way she would relay it was like a This American Life story. Hmm. And, like, it was... And like, and I feel like, and I feel like I would start to do that too. Like, you started to just see everything in that lens, and it was a lot about details. So, do you have like the elements of a This American Life story? Do you break it down into like, what it needs X, Y, and Z? Um, yeah, but again, it's like more that it's more that sensibility. There's a lot of things that I know don't make a This American Life story, and mm-hmm. that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an attitude, like there's a certain like width of pretentiousness that I feel like is such an automatic no-no that that I eliminate a lot of stuff. And a lot of people, when pe- a lot of times when people come to me and suggest a story, it will kind of have, even if they aren't pretentious, it'll have that kind of attitude or it'll be super self-indulgent. And I know This American Life, you could, you, it could, you could maybe accuse it of that because there's so much first-person things or it could be like too clubby or something. But it's not, it actually is not... It's not aiming to just talk about people like yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I feel like it's more like this kind of sensibility and details that I know the show would find interesting than breaking down like this has to happen, this has to happen, this has to happen. Mm-hmm. I know there has to be a change. Like, I know you have to have a story where something happens. Um, but then sometimes I'll hear a story on the show and less will happen than I would have thought thought if I was pitching it too mm-hmm. so then that makes me again think it's like this tone it's a very like it's a very certain tone which I feel like does make it hard for people to pitch to because yeah I think like, it's probably the, one of the more frustrating places for people who haven't worked for it or trying to because they can listen it's one of those things where they can listen to it and say oh yeah my story is just like that one and it's but it's not well, they're wrong a lot of times people say yeah it, okay, well I always find it really confusing when people have a hard time pitching I guess if they've actually listened to this show I know there's a story list that we send out and I know that story list is terrifying because what that story list does is says it would be great if we could find this and then we'll list an example of something that's the greatest story you've ever heard in your life then they might not even have or they'll be so good at describing an episode like what the stories that they have like in the hopper 
are that you get so scared because like mine's not as good. So I know why people are daunted by that. And I've talked to like really good writers, really good reporters who get that list and freeze and then will never pitch to the show because of it. Mm-hmm. But I'm more confused why people who listen to the show and then say, oh, I have a perfect This American Life story and then tell me that story and it's nothing, it's so wrong why that happens. Because <laughs> that happens all the time and it completely confuses me. Because if you actually listen to it, I feel like you should start to like notice patterns. Yeah. Do you report out uh, stories just to see where they'll go? Like, I have an example. So yeah. one of my favorite stories of yours is this, uh, about this hotel that's haunted by this ghost. Yeah. Supposedly haunted by this ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the first half of the story or so is really good because it's just about this ghost and all these hotel people have sort of seen it and they know about it. But it strikes me that it wouldn't actually be a This American Life story except the second half of it gets really crazy yeah. in terms of like the threads that this supposed ghost like ties into all these other things. Did you know that before you started? Did you report it out? I didn't know that before I started. That, that one, I love that story because it's also like it came from the internet. Oh, I mean, really? not the idea, but like the I, hearing about Walter. Like, it's so, I think the internet makes my brain so soft, and it usually tends to kill all my curiosity. And that was it was that's an older story, so it was before the internet really took over my body, but and mind and soul. But <laughs> that was because I was going to produce a story about a trucker convention when I was working at the show. This other reporter had pitched a story about a trucker convention, and I went, and I was looking for hotels for us to stay, and just one of the, it was like, um, not Expedia, what's like the, ho- like a hotel website? Yeah, like a like TripAdvisor or yeah, something. Yeah, like a TripAdvisor, yeah. like a total chainy, weird <laughs> font kind of website, and it was just, I was reading the ratings, and then people just started to say, like, great hotel, love the beds, the pool was really nice, too bad the ghost kept waking me up. <laughs> And it was enough of them. And then I was like, that's amazing. Because it wasn't advertised as a haunted hotel at all. I think I say that in the story. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's in just, the story. But it was just like, so, and I, and what you want to be able to do is like, I don't, I hate hearing about stories that already exist and then you go like re-report them. And so that one, I think we were already in Fond du Lac. And then I started to like ask around when we stayed, I did stay at that hotel for that story. And then another John Hodgman, you know, John Hodgman, mm-hmm. he used to have this thing called the Little Grey Book Lecture Series, which was where he, like, his his persona was, like, fully formed. I mean, it was probably fully formed at birth, but he would, like, kind of be John Hodgman, and it was, like, these fake lectures. And he asked me to do something, and I flew myself to Wisconsin and stayed in that hotel and just dug around and hoped to find something. So that one I did not know anything. I just hoped that it was going to lead to something. Oh, but is that is that general principle? Do you have a bunch of sort of half half reported stories, or that you're kind of like chasing the string on? I mean, like when I'm like more energy, like I feel like I'd love to believe I was a person who's like I'm always chasing down the story, <laughs> so much curiosity. Um, I feel like it's always like so exhausting to me. So like, but ideally that would be how I would like to kind of conduct things. Where like I don't know how it's going to turn out. I mean, the breakup story, you know was not reported out. The breakup story was, I have this idea, let's see where it leads. So oh, that really? one was more like with This American Life where I was just like, I want to do a story about breakup songs. I've been listening to them a lot. I had this idea about um, talking about Against the Odd, but we did not know if Phil Collins was going to be involved at all. And they were just like, okay, let's do it. And then we just kind of, so the pitch was pretty much, like I wrote like a pretty much like a personal essay for the pitch, but really informal. Mm-hmm. And then we went 
and figured out where everything went. So you didn't have an idea that you were going to end up talking to Phil Collins? Even no, I knew I was going to talk to, I was like, I'm going to need some advice from somebody. That was like the initial, it was, the initial pitch was, like in that story, I, in that story, my boyfriend, should I tell them? Yeah, yeah, you might as well tell My them. boyfriend and I break up, he dumps me, and we had been listening to all this Phil Collins, and then he, um, and so when we broke up, I quoted against all odds to him and asked how I could just walk away and leave without a trace. And then I got so sad after that all I could do to feel, all I could do, period, was listen to breakup songs all the time. And so when I, and then I really, really, really decided that I needed to write my own breakup song. And then I wrote to This American Life and asked them if I could. So that's all we knew. All we knew was that I wanted to write a breakup song. I didn't know how to do it. And I wanted to talk about um, my boyfriend leaving and quoting Phil Collins. And I wanted to break down what breakup songs were. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know who the musicians were going to be, how I was going to get it done, or that Phil Collins was actually going to be involved. <laughs> <laughs> do, um, is that your most well-known story, do you think? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, is it well-known enough that it bothers you? That you feel like everyone's like, ah, Phil Collins. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also because it's about like my heart getting stomped on. And it's... And that's weird that people just, it's weird because it means that it will never stop like being brought up. Like it's weird when people, when like the most, like a really painful thing is constantly brought up. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad people say it helped. And people have told me that their therapists have prescribed that story. No. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I've people written to me and said, my therapist, this was like what they said I had to do. I don't um, know if that's a proper prescription. Do you think I they know, wrote it on like a prescription pad? <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's really hard to read. Really. <laughs> But the pharmacist knows. Yeah, the pharmacist knows the story yeah, too, yeah, and course. so yeah, they were just like, "Of course, we get to the website." Lot. I can't. I don't know if we have this in because it's so <laughs> popular. <laughs> but that's a that's a general. There's a general issue there in terms of uh, writing about yourself and yes. what when's the uh, taping about yourself, or <laughs> whatever you would call um, it. What, yeah, there is. I mean, there's a general. I feel like reluctance I have to write about myself now as I get older than than I did when I mean that definitely has happened, but particularly with that story. Like I don't know if that story that story just it's kind of a shame because now there's all this I like I feel like I could have maybe done more stuff with that story, but I'm it just feels like so like that was the only thing I'm ever going to say about heartbreak that mm-hmm. I can't even like use it for anything else. Like it just it fully exists on its own and uh, and I feel like Maybe it's, I'm glad people like it, but the popularity almost has made me like never want to talk about myself again. Hmm. There is something like there's a weird, I don't know, as I get not, not, not like old or anything, but I do feel like there was like, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe it was ignorance or oblivion or something, obliviousness, but um, I feel like I'm more skittish and afraid to talk about myself. Like, there's a fearlessness I had when I was younger that I don't have now. Mm-hmm. And there's something. I was not, I didn't think I was that cocky of a young person, but I feel like I must have been because I thought, I mean, I would, I would, I would have a hard time, like it takes me a long time to write stuff always, but I would still always believe like I should say this and this story is worth saying and of course everyone wants to hear about my mother or my family or my boyfriend or something. And now I'm, I constantly second guess that. Hmm. And I think also blogging, internet, existence of bloggers and internet and like so much self-confession stuff um, has made me like not like the form as much. Well, this has been there's been this whole like pseudo internet discussion about this. Have you seen that with a Gawker didn't story? I read the Gawker story. I read the Liz Wurzel story. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> which I know is not. Which I I saw a couple things tied into like that article tying into that Gawker discussion. Yeah, it kind of hit exactly after people were talking about. Uh, I mean, that Gawker story was essentially that uh, postulating that all of these journalism students are sort of being taught, or writing students are being taught that they should do confessional, and that's all they want to do, and that that's uh, a terrible a dead end and a terrible idea to train people to do that. And they should yeah. go out in the world and find someone else's story. Yeah, and then you, that Liz Wirtle. The reason like, I feel like she's such a cautionary tale because, I mean, I I didn't actually read Prozac Nation, but like reading someone whose entire, like, who is a self, whose whole thing is about being is self-confessional at forty-four or whatever. Like, it's it terrified me. Well, you ha- you kind of have to keep living a very. Uh... I mean, either you got to start writing, then you start writing about your kids or your family, or yeah. if you're if you don't have that, and then you're going to keep kind of living a crazier and crazier yeah. life. To, so you about, have more and also material. Even your kids and family, like everything, is kind of every single thing. I feel like is a dead end after a while. I mean, this American life, like I feel like I was lucky because I wrote about myself, but they always, they never were just like anything you say is interesting you always have to have a pitch and an angle and like every story I've done I only did one I've only done one thing on the show ever that is just writing everything else has reporting Mm -hmm. everything and I feel like that gets kind of lost sometimes like people like because I have like a personality or whatever Mm -hmm. but like there's always a story and usually it starts off about me and then um becomes and then is coupled with something else like the nixon halderman thing you hear that story oh yeah yeah like that that started about like being in school and hr halderman visited my junior high and that was always i told this american life that when i was like an intern or something like it's always been kind of floating around and we didn't do anything with it until we actually like got this thing about the reagan library and put it together oh i see i mean i kind of like memoir seems like you should have lived long enough and then you write about these things that happen and that's kind of like what's not happening as much anymore but i feel like as i already am bored with myself enough that I can barely write about myself even when the focus isn't on me. Mm-hmm. So I can't imagine keep writing the whole thing about me anymore at all. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem now is that there's just a lot of sort of what happened to me lately. It's it's not even sort of like, this amazing story happened to me, so yeah. I'm obviously going to put myself in this story. It's just the world now is f- it's filled with an idea that you kind of like even if you're not a writer, people yeah. do that. They're sort of like, here's all the things that yeah. happened to me. And a lot of it is good, too. That's, I think that's also why I think I became afraid, though, because I was like, if, if they can all do it just as well. <laughs> or so, like I, and then it's not all good, but you know, even I'll read like a tweet or something, which I think is really inspiring. And so I just feel like I, feel like I began to put less stock in it being it, like me, that I was all that good at it, and I don't know. It just it, it threw me into a crisis, the internet in general. But I, <laughs> I wonder if aging, I feel like if aging just makes you, I feel like I've talked to other people who write less about themselves as they get older. Yeah, just more cautious about. You're, you're more cautious about what you kind of have out there. But, I mean, there's, there's that that I just don't want people to know, like, every single thing anymore. But there's an inner fear that did not exist before. Mm. Like an inner censoring that I feel like was not there. Mm-hmm. And when you kind of, like, came up through this American life, did it make you, do you feel like, do you self-describe as a journalist, reporter? I don't know. Um, yeah, more reporter. Because I feel like when I came up, it was such an, 
like organic. I was like in college when I was. Yeah, first let's on talk the show. about that. I love that story. When I was in college, or just how yeah. you ended up on the show in the first place. So I ended up on the show because I I wasn't I went to NYU, and I didn't like, and um, I'm only saying that so that no one goes to NYU. <laughs> or I guess no one goes to NYU when I went there. They recently called me asking for like money, like the alumni committee, and I was like on the phone with them for like an hour being like... Telling them why you didn't like it? I was just like, I'm so principally opposed to you asking me money to help other people go here. <laughs> like I was like, maybe I'll... I was almost call, hung up and called another school and gave them money just so that they would like... <laughs> I did not like it. But, well, don't um, give it to Duke because I went to Duke and I didn't like it either. See? No Duke. So I would have given it. it off the list. I would have given it to um, Wesleyan. Well, people that go to Wesleyan. And, I know. Yeah, they're so good. I like them people. so much. Yeah. No. Um, here. Yeah. Anyway. So, but I, anyway, I was in NYU and I, the reason I'm saying I didn't like it too is because I stopped. Like I was like barely paying attention to like anything that was happening. And I started working at a bookstore across the street, Shakespeare and Company. And, but I was also taking a video class, like a really crappy video class. And I had this neighbor who um, was a really old lady. I feel like she's still alive and still, like, she seems like she might have oh, been a ghost. you think she's still over there? Yeah, I feel like she, I feel like I've seen her around not that long ago. Her name's still on the buzzer because I took a picture of it recently. And I feel like she, if she's still around, she's a ghost. Like she's just, she was around now. She was always around. Like there was no time when she wasn't there. She will always be. <laughs> And her name was, and she, anyway, well, but um, she was a really old Ukrainian lady, and she'd been in the building since it started, and we shared a wall, like there was these units where there were four apartments looking at each other, and we shared a wall, and she got it into her head that I was a drug kingpin, um, like not just doing drugs or dealing drugs, but like heading up all of the drug operation in the entire village. And why did she originally think she that? She didn't have any, she never told us. She never said why. She, and it was me. Like I was, I had roommates and stuff. And what was funny is that there were, it was right, my apartment building was right down the street from Cooper Union and there were just like art kids around and young people all in the building and, and my neighbor was like a huge pothead and he would like open the door and you would just see like a cloud of smoke come out every, every single time he opened the door. It smelled like pot and I didn't smoke pot and she and I was just this little kid in my apartment building and she decided it was me. Like she had zeroed in on me and, um, and decided that I was this kingpin and she thought people were like bringing that I was like heading up operations and like coordinating the dealers everywhere and she and I knew this because she began to frame try to frame me in the building and she would take these signs that said kind and bronstein that was my last my roommate's last name and she'd write she'd cut up neon colored rave flyers because raves were really big and she'd cut them into rectangles and write kind and bronstein or just sometimes kind selling drugs in apartment number three <laughs> and she'd stick them up with like gum all around the building and she'd have these strategic spots like she'd stick one in the front door so when you came to the building the first thing you saw looking out on the glass door was that like a like a flyer like a so it was it wasn't an accusation it was actually like as if you were advertising yeah yeah right they could be led it could you could be if you were looking for business yeah she didn't i guess she didn't realize that it could backfire and more people could could call up and say yeah yeah. she thought she was doing like she was a vigilante and Mm -hmm. she was um declaring it mm-hmm. so she'd put it on the front door there'd be above the mailboxes not necessarily my mailbox like just above the row and then there'd be one when you first came up the stairs you'd see it on the wind i can like totally picture it coming up the stairs and you'd see it on the window and then on my door itself right above like the peephole and 
without fail, those would be the spots. And if you took one down, she would immediately replace it. Like, I taped her eventually. Um, like, well, what I did, I decided to make a documentary about her because we'd get into all these fights. And one of the things I did was I stood in the pothead neighbor's house and I, like, filmed through the people. And I tried to catch her in the act of, like, replacing one of the signs because she would do it so fast. Like, there'd be a sign on my front door and you would hear, and like I would take it down, close the door, and then open it again, and it'd already be a sign of place. <laughs> like it was so quick, <laughs> and she was really, really, really old. And she would also do this thing where she, uh, she would, um, she would collect like young people, what she thought was young people trash, like um, hostess Twinkie wrappers and stuff, and lay them in front of the stairs in front of my apartment so it looked like I was littering and so I guess the building would get I mean in East Village like Divey building too would get so upset that they'd kick me out but it was always kid trash um and then she it was crazy and then she thought I had I would babysit this little boy and she accused him of being a mule that was like one of the things we fought about she was like he's one of my little workers so I ended up making like a really crappy documentary and it was like I, I it's so dated like it has reenactments with like toys in it where like I did I bought all these little toys and I tried to reenact us fighting and stuff and I catch <laughs> her in it we yell at each other and uh I there's the whole people scene there's music there's a theme song that my friend wrote and wow. it plays at some point but what the whole deal? thing is it's filmed so so like there's all these good ideas in it but it looks really bad and there's like laundry everywhere and stuff and then I would um when I worked at the bookstore, what I, what I would do is I would have, like, barbecues at night. Like, after we all got off work, and I'd go to my rooftop, and we'd barbecue. But what you could do is you could come over, you could watch the movie, and then you could go into the hallway, and you could see her. And what she, it, was like, it was like she was being paid. You'd watch a documentary, then you'd come into the hallway, look over, and she would open her door, like, slowly open and close her door and shine a flashlight into the hall, <laughs> like a haunted house ride. And it would be all creaky, and you'd just see her, and she'd be, like, shining the flashlights at the kids. And it was really satisfying because you could see, like, the main attraction. Um, and I would do that a lot. And one of the people who... That would be considered sort of, like, mean gawking, except that she had she executed awful. this vendetta against she you. She did, and it was, like, months and months and months of it. I mean, it was, it was a little out of line. Like, there'd be, like, crowds of people in my hallway, like, staring at her. But she would just, like, she didn't have to open her door. We didn't knock. Yeah, she would yeah. just hear it and then like eh, put the flashlight out, and then um, eventually someone at that bookstore told Paul Tuff. At the time, he had just—I think he was working at Harper's. I just finished working at Harper's, and he was like one of the people who kind of helped, who consulted it about the beginning of this American Life. From what I understand, um, he seems some like some kind of like um, like Zelig. Yeah, yeah. Like he he uh, he edited a thing I did one time, and he was like. Amazing. Unbelievable. He's amazing. He's just good at everything. He's good at everything. And he also was one of those people that had that, like, sensibility that I was talking about. Like, I didn't... The thing is, I didn't know. So, like, he... She told him... And I still have, like, the piece of paper. Like, I have it. Like, he... She she said... It was This American Life was only, like, a year and a half old. It was really in the beginning. And um, she gave me, like, she said, my friend... I told him about your neighbor. He wants to do a story about it. And I didn't know if it was for, um, like, I didn't know what it was for. It could have been for, like, a college radio station. And I remember thinking, like, I hope it's this show, This American Life. But I didn't want to, like, actually, like, I, that seemed too crazy. And it was, it's crazy that I even kind of knew about it. It was so beginning. And then, um, 
And she like gave me the paper and I had his number and she spelled his name wrong. It was like T-U-F-F because I have that paper. And then I called it and it was, it was for, he said, for This American Life. And he came over and he started interviewing me. And I swear, like, I did not understand what that, I didn't know what the sensibility was or anything. And the minute I started talking to him or like had this conversation, the guy was like, oh my God, this is the greatest this whatever this is like whatever he is doing and this feels like is the greatest thing and I felt totally like it's what I wanted to do for the rest forever for the rest of my life uh-huh. and then and like he didn't he probably it's, I'm imagining him listening to this but like I don't I, I'm not sure how aware of it he was but we ended up doing a story he did the story he put me on the radio and I remember like then like we stayed friends and the whole time I was just like wh- however I can get to like what the he think like someone who thinks like him I'll do uh-huh. and then you started working there yeah then I became an intern I became it at the time the intern was only two interns a year and I don't think I would have gotten it if I hadn't been on the show like mm-hmm. it was seemed I didn't know anything about radio I didn't have any technical skills and would they even do now like you didn't if, if you don't have any audio editing skills oh, I, I mean so. like now I think it's has so like, insane yeah like now I think it's like you have to apply like so many times too that was the only time Ever. And I remember I'd been working at Pop-Up Video, that TV show. The VH1 thing? Yeah. I was like a like a production person like a, in the office. And I remember like one of my pitches on my intern application was that um, they, um, something had happened where we somehow, there was, a, there was a hotline that you could call up for Pop-Up Video to give tips about videos or I don't know why it was before the internet pretty much <laughs> I don't know what it was for but somehow there was a hotline that you could call and there was a reason for it it was some tips for something and the people who would call got into their head that it was Oprah's tip line or I don't even know if they it was a miscommunication it might have been that people are trying to get a hold of Oprah and any means just, necessary. Yeah, they're just trying yeah, TV-based TV numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So they would leave these really like heart-wrenching messages for Oprah. And I would have to be in charge of them all. And that was like my pitch where I was like, you should do it about like the Oprah tip line. They were like amazing. <laughs> yeah, but that did, they didn't no, they wanted it. to do it. I yeah. remember like, I feel like something happened where we couldn't, like we didn't, we hadn't, we didn't have copies of them or something. So, but that was, I still think that's kind of a good pitch. And so there was something, I guess, early on, but that was what I, yeah, that was what I suggested. Yeah. And then you started, eventually started working as a producer. There. Yeah, I was an intern and then... As an intern, and then there was like a six-month period in between where I went to, and, that, and that's when I went to Hollywood Forever and messed up the tape, mm-hmm. and then, but still, and then I, um, then they were hiring producers, and it was me and Jonathan Goldstein. So uh, this American Life producer is mostly coming up with stories and doing your own stories, or going along with someone else and, and the, producing the, their stories? Um, both. This American Life, I feel like the word producer is so, it is, it doesn't feel like a producer of any other, the word seems like it should be a different word at this point, because... Uh-huh. It's so different than all of the kind of producing, I think. But um, you come up with your own stories. You help figure out the themes of all the episodes. You figure out... You're assigned... If you're not working on your own story, you're assigned probably like a story per episode, right? So you have... You work with that writer. You usually... And you start to build up your writers, which I don't know that how it works in magazines. Yeah, similar editor would have to um, that. And then you also physically or you know put it together you're also the editor so when you have the story you're editing all the tape you cut all the tape you score everything musically and you editorially edit like you both edit the writing and edit the tape i see you know it's like the the role of editor and producer the same and engineer the same thing it's all the same and And you learned all that on the job yeah 
And was this, was it the dream job that you imagined it was before you yeah. got there? Um, yeah. I mean, it was like terrifying. And uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like the people who work at This American Life are the dream people. Like, I feel like anyone who listens to the show, if you want to know if everyone's as smart and interesting as you might imagine they are, they are. Like, they are definitely across the board. They're not secretly mean? Uh, they're not secretly mean. They're also not secretly boring, which I feel like would be worse. Like, I feel like I've talked to people who are, like, heroes. But when you actually talk, like, I don't actually want to have conversations with them. Like, everyone in This American Life, I always... I was late today because I was having too long of a conversation with one of the producers. Because yeah. I didn't want to get off the phone. Because it was so... It's fun. Just enjoy to talk to. <laughs> I did. <laughs> they're not always easy to get on the phone is a problem. Um, they're busy. But, um, yeah, I feel like, also, like, I was, I don't know, when I worked at This American Life, I was in Chicago. It was a different, it was totally different than how it is now. Like, mm-hmm. I haven't worked there for a while. No, it's New York. New York, it's also, like, a much more streamlined thing, I think. Like, I think they have, they have more producers. It's more, it's, it's just, it was, like, the middle years, I feel, that I worked there. Mm-hmm. There's, like, been different phases of it. And also, it was, um... It was, again, like this pre-internet thing. Everything's like, gotten worse since the internet. Well, I don't know. I haven't worked there since, like, you have to compete as hard as you do with um, ideas coming from the internet. That seems that seems really hard. Like, I just feel like that changes things. Also, when I worked there, it was like, like you really had, like, the on-air light outside the door. <laughs> and, like, it was live. Mm-hmm. It really, really, really was live. And so and you could always fix it if it made a mistake. If you messed up the show, you could... Ira, he always actually does fixes after it seemed at the time because he was like he would decide something went wrong, but it was exciting. Like you, like knew you had to finish it by that Friday because the light was going to go on and you had to get this thing on. And it was always like every single week was a broadcast news style where you're always running with the tape down the hallway uh-huh. like, for real. Huh. And uh, so that was great. And I feel like now I think it goes out earlier and like I think they finish it the night before. Oh, I think I could be wrong about that. Hmm. Maybe. So how come you left? Well, there was just like, well, I feel like I was kind of like, I was, I feel like I wanted to do more writing stuff. And it was just like, it was like, it was also stressful. And I was, it, you get burnt out in a different kind of way. Burnt out of ideas? Yeah. Or like having it, to come up with those ideas every week? Well, yeah. Well, like you have to like fill out, if you don't have like a story for the, like, it's so scary when you don't have a story, like a third story or a fourth story for the episode, too. Like, you'd have to generate it out of thin air, you know? Like, I remember episodes I produced where there was just not a 12-minute story that existed, and you had to find a 12-minute story. And the thing about This American Life is it has to be a good story. Like, it's still, even when there's nothing in, there's nothing left. Like, even if you get like, down to the wire, it still has to be good. Like, you're still not going to say yes to a bad story. Yeah. And so, like, the quality is so out of control that that it just, it's so stressful. And then I guess it's so structured that you also can't, uh, like, in a magazine, you just be like, well, we'll put a charticle or something there. You can't do we'll anything fill like out that. this page or something else. And you know, padding, you can't make an interview longer. I'm just like, they just never do that. They just never are like, oh, we'll put three more minutes of bad tape in or anything. And does it, the, the structure of it has never changed, right? It's a, it, no. significantly, like if you go listen to the first ones, they, they're exact same format. The structure is the same format, yeah. Do you think it'll just go on for 
the show. Do they, yeah, I'm just curious if internally there's ever any talk of sort of like, what if we did something completely different? I mean, there are episodes that sound different yeah. for a variety of reasons. And it became but. more topical and more newsy, for sure. Like, post-September 11th, the show changed. Yeah. That's like a, I mean, that's when, I, I'm sure it's changed other times, too, but like, well, I was there September 11th, and I know, like, I remember how it changed, and I remember the feeling, and I remember... Like suddenly, like the direction being like we're going to become much more new show, and it has stayed like that since then. Yeah, it was not like that before. Like there was serious stuff, and Ira's always like he was an education reporter and all that stuff. And but it was I remember like the moment when it happened. Yeah, and so since you left, yeah, you've done you have done a lot of writing, or you write a lot for the Times Magazine. Yeah, I thought as much as I should, but yes, not um, as much as you should. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't do as much as I should of anything, but um. And also, I sold a book that I have not. I'm, I'm gonna. I have not finished yet. I'm gonna finish it. I'm going to Yado in a couple of weeks. I'm gonna finish it. You're gonna finish it. Uh-huh. How long Yotto. has it been? It's, it's been so long. It's been like years. It's been so long. I'm a different person than when I sold it. That's my biggest problem now. So the book is about the health self-help industry. Yeah. Or it's more of a personal yeah, yeah. journey no. through self-help. No, it's, it's not a journey. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a journey. <laughs> And Journey I'm, would imply that you have to, like, you're going to, f- there will be revelations at the end of how you've changed. Yeah, and there probably will be, but the thing is, the, a journey would imply that it would be, like, a best-selling book that would probably, like, change my life, and I can't handle it. Like, I can't not, I can't handle that. I can't handle the word. The word makes me so crazy. <laughs> I hate the idea of it so much. I didn't even know that. That's, like, it seems yeah. so girly to me. Yeah? Yeah. I guess I could imagine personal journey of a man with his dog. Like, that's a journey, right? Like if it's a dog or a horse or a fox. <laughs> yeah, it could be literal, more of a literal journey. Yeah, like a bike. Kind of thing. Yeah. But it, I guess that's the only way I can imagine if, if, if someone's going to tie it to like a man's book. It would have to be like a literal journey, a mountain, animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we talked about, you and I talked about like gender byline stuff yeah. one time. And you were yeah. saying you sometimes felt like people, they, they just wouldn't assign you stories that were not personal or were not I, tr- I, I I kind of bristle at the idea of doing things that are just specifically girl stuff um, so I don't, I don't know if they're assigning it to me because of that I think they're assigning it to me more because they think I'm a personal essayist and so um, and it, it tends to be a lot of and it does tend to be women's magazines that do that like men's magazines but I think it's just because that's that's how it is yeah um but, um, but uh, yes, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if that's a gender thing, but it does. I do wish that, um, and it always makes me kind of tired. Getting those assignments thrown at you. Or, like, can you write a little bit about uh, Well, the worst is when it's just dating. like, oh, God, yeah, yeah. Dating. That's what I mean, though, about, like, I feel like maybe if I had a different attitude, I'd be excited to be writing more about dating, but I just feel like I've said the thing I want to say about dating. Um, and also, like, the worst is when it's just like, you could write about anything. That's and everyone. I mean, editors know that, right? How terrible that is to say yeah. to a writer. They don't all know it, but they, cause they always act so excited when they say that to you. It sounds like a wonderful yeah. luxury. Yeah, we just we we care. We think you're so talented or whatever that you can. The whole world is your, anything you approach would be interesting, but it just is terrible. It's the worst <laughs> thing to hear. But the book. So I do want to talk about the book mm-hmm. a little bit, but it's 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 kind of like a reported. It's a reported thing. Um, initially, the idea was that I would go to these self-help places and I would try to fix my problems and I would go to the ones specifically that were targeting towards problems that I had. And I did do that initially, but then I just got, I got so tired of both 
self-help and myself <laughs> that I just couldn't take it anymore and so I feel like I'd rather broaden it out to other other like the I don't want it to be a reporter book I don't want it to be like a super academic book that is blowing the lid off self-help I mm-hmm. want it to sound like me but I don't want it to just be like just yeah essays about my dog right <laughs> and how like I just can't handle it I wish I could it'd be a lot easier if I could do it so then, are you still when are you still doing this American Life stuff? Yes, I am. But I feel like I, this American Life, I really, sh- I kind of miss doing stories for it, and it's only because I haven't thought of. When I say that, I mean I miss thinking, getting into the mindset where I'm looking around and looking for this American Life story, because mm-hmm. like it's totally open to me. And like sometimes I'll go through phases where like I'm really actively thinking hard about it, and it's really pleasant when you when I am in that mode, because mm-hmm. you find them. Okay, Used up all of my questions. Really? Hmm. Yeah. All right, we're done. Good. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Let's go to the bar. Thanks for listening to Long Form. That was Evan Ratliff. I'm Max Linsky. Our third musketeer is Aaron Lammer. Show's edited by Lauren Kirchner and sponsored by the good people at Tiny Letter. We'll be back with another interview next week. In the meantime, if you want to read or listen to any of the pieces that Starley and Emma just discussed, they'll be in the show notes at longform.org slash podcast. We've got all the old episodes there, too, if you're new to the show. Oh, and uh, one more thing you could do while you're waiting for next week's interview, go on to iTunes, leave us a review. It's actually, like, uh, very helpful, or so I'm told. Okay, see you next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.